0: For those of you that are busy with us today or haven't been here for a while, we are reading through the books of the Bible, the first five books. It's, it's a new international, it's not, not a different one, but it's a different version where all of the chapters and verse markings are out and we're reading it more as a book. And so we're reading for these, through these first five books of the Bible. If you ever try to read your way through the Bible, you get to Genesis and you go, this is really exciting. These are some stories that are familiar. Here's Noah and here's creation and here's Abraham and the story of Joseph in Egypt and then you get into Exodus and that's the exciting story of the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the Passover and all that that. Uh, and, um, and then you get into uh, Leviticus. And, then, and we lose a lot of people in Leviticus, don't we? You know, I've been preaching for, I, I realize I, I've been a pastor for almost 40 years, but I've been preaching full-time where I've been lead pastor for almost 30 years now. I have, this is my first time, first time in Leviticus. And um, so we'll see how it goes. Let me know afterwards. Um, but really, Leviticus is perhaps best known for being the book that thwarts many of effort to, to read through the whole Bible from the beginning. Leviticus contains prohibitions that are quoted by many to prove a point. This is a, a source of some really good proof text to say, this is what the Bible says. The problem is, sometimes the verse right next to it's like that couldn't possibly be applied to today and and we don't get to pick do we i say i like that this one's good and this one's not We, we don't get to approach the word that way for example i was looking and there's there's a verse in there that prohibits tattoos and this became an issue in our covenant companion a few months ago there was people talking about their tattoos and the next month there was letters to the editor going it says in leviticus we shouldn't do that which it does say that but the verse right after it says do not cut the hair on the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard who did that today I, didn't, I was going to trim over my ears, but I was feeling a little convicted about the hair on the side of my head. So you see, and I, and I, and I don't mean to make light of the word, but this is what, what kind of confuses us and challenges us as we get into Leviticus. There are these words of great truth, and yet there's other prohibitions that don't make a lot of sense in our world. But also, did you know that one verse that we quote very, very often, uh, in fact, it's a command that is among the most important, according to Jesus, is found in Leviticus, In the middle of chapter 19, verse 18, it says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's in there? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right in the middle of this, don't bear a grudge, and there it is. When the the scribe came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, where we'll be in two weeks. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And another is like it. Love your neighbors, yourself. Right there. The great commandment includes a, a verse from Leviticus. Leviticus can be a little confusing. It's so, so detailed. Uh, there's, it feels so much of another time and, a, and another place. But I think when we step back a little bit or step up a little bit and we see how it fits in the flow of God's story... When we see how it is God actually forming a people, forming his people, Israel, and when we keep the promise of Jesus out in front, yes, Jesus is here. His name isn't mentioned, but we can anticipate him from the pages of Leviticus. Then when we take this higher view of God's story, a holy people, and the person of Christ, it starts to make a little more sense. So let's see how we can do with this, okay? So this is what I want to say. With the tabernacle now designed and built in the final chapters of Exodus, that's where we've been the last couple of weeks, Leviticus now brings the laws and regulations for worship there, worship in that tabernacle, of the worship of the one holy God. And so even in the intricate details, we can see the need for Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. So that's where we're headed. There's several themes that weave their way through Leviticus and the four that I want to try to address right now are, first of all, there's a heightening sense of, of holiness here, the sense of a perfect God calling us to be perfect people. You'll see I put a question mark after perfect people. There's a heightening sense of holiness. Secondly, there's also sort of a, a rising awareness of the presence of God. It's a very real uh, experiential sensory thing here, this, this presence of God. And then there's this issue of sacrifice. There's a, a coming face-to-face with sacrifice. We, we tend to kind of take it for granted. We say, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Well, why? Why did Jesus have to die? And so we'll look at sacrifice. And then finally, woven through is the whole theme of, of gifts and offerings. And so we'll look at this in terms of uh, a responding with obedience. So those are the four themes we want to take a look at. Heightening sense of holiness. I have, I have a name for myself uh, at home when we're doing a lot of cooking, right? Like when it's a family dinner or a holiday and, and Megan's in the kitchen cooking uh, a lot of food and uh, the daughter, daughters-in-law are in there and baking, baking pans are flying and mixing bowls and all that. I, I, I take my location at the sink because I'm more of a cleanup person. So I, my job, my name on those days is Mr. Keep It Clean because I, I, there's, there's, there's a chance that this 9 by 13 is going to be needed three more times, and another good chance that this mixing bowl is going to be needed two more times. And so I just sit in the kitchen, and I, or otherwise it just becomes like this. So I'm Mr. Keep It Clean. I just kind of keep that going and keep washing and drying, and that way I'm part of the mix and I don't have to deal with food because I'm not much of a foodie. It's not necessarily a perfect kitchen, but at least we keep it clean. So I'm Mr. Keep It Clean. And that kind of could be a name for Leviticus to be Mr. Keep It Clean, although Leviticus wasn't a person. It's just a name of a book referring to those of the tribe of Levi. But we could call that, uh, we could use that as an expression to refer to Leviticus. It's, a, it's a keeping it clean. Keeping it clean is a theme that weaves its way through the book. Or more precisely, keeping it holy. Holy means to be set apart by God. It also means to be set apart for God. And God is ultimate holiness. God is absolute perfection. God is so, so very, very different from us who struggle to keep it clean and living out our own lives. This holiness of God is an overriding theme, and in fact, it's a a key to Leviticus. The word for holy, translated holy, holiness, or sanctify, comes 152 times in the book of Leviticus. There's this whole theme of clean and unclean, and the word of being unclean or uncleanness comes 132 times in Leviticus, and that's more than half of all Old Testament references to uncleanness are in Leviticus. I know that doesn't excite you, but it informs you, right? (laughs) And then the word clean comes 74 times. You see, in this Old Testament system of sacrifices and offerings and relating to God, the the, the basic state of things is clean or common. And when things are set apart for God's holy purposes, then they become holy. But that can't happen if they have become unclean. And so if anything unclean or any person unclean is unable to approach God in worship, you would be kept from worship if you're declared unclean for a variety of things that you can read about in Leviticus. And so then comes the system of, of detailed offerings, of washings and sacrifices, uh, and these are all ways of moving things from being unclean to clean, moving from common to holy, moving from unacceptable to acceptable to this perfect and holy God. And so that's the system here of making things holy that we can approach God. This whole tabernacle thing was was new. People needed to know how to approach God. They had just come out into the wilderness from all of these years of slavery in Egypt and God is just now building them into a people. What's important from this text is that, you see, God wasn't just, we can read it and say God was just loading us up on rules and regulations. God is just giving us all these hoops to jump through. In order to keep keep his people, let, let's help them, I, thou shalt be very religiously active people. Here's a bunch of rules so that you can be religiously active people. That's not what God was doing. This was, and it was not just about cleanliness. He was forming them into a people through whom he could reveal, continue to reveal himself. Remember the story of God is God created Man and woman fell into sin, and God began his work of redeeming and drawing us back. And he works through one people group in order to bring us back to him. And that's where we are in the story. God is forming them into a people through whom he could continue to reveal himself, through whom he would bless the whole earth, as was his promise. He was establishing a holy people. He says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. I found another way of explaining Leviticus this week that I found really helpful. In Leviticus, uh, says this perspective, spiritual holiness holiness is symbolized by physical perfection. Spiritual holiness is symbolized by physical perfection. Therefore, the the book demands perfect animals and perfect sacrifices and requires priests who do not have any sense of deformity either. And so all of these words about... You know, and some of it makes you a little queasy, actually. I mean, I, I don't get real excited about reading in the Bible about bodily discharges, but it's in the book. All of these words about bodily functions, about monthly cycles, about discharges, about different kinds of skin rashes and what they look like, and things about mold, all of these things are signs of imperfection. They're signs and, 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 and symbols of, of blemish and imperfection. And these symbolize, then, our spiritual defects, the spiritual defects of the people, which breaks our spiritual wholeness with God. And so then people that had these physical deformities or issues, they were sent away, they were banished from the camp, they were sent far away from the tabernacle, which meant what? Being far away from what? The presence of God. Who else was sent away from the garden? Adam and Eve were sent from the garden when they sinned and fell from from grace, but the people in Leviticus can only return when they are pronounced clean by an examining priest. One note I made in my Bible reading was those priests were really busy. I think my job description gets unrealistic sometimes, but boy, these guys had to hear all of these things. This this um, this sense of cleanliness. Anyway, they had to be present to the priest, and to get there, they had to offer the perfect prescribed offerings and sacrifices. And as they continue to offer these sacrifices and offerings in order to be closer to God and one with God, we see here, we begin to see here, the perfect sacrifice, the whole sacrifice, the role that could only be filled by Jesus himself. But We'll get to that a little later and see where this theme of holiness ties in and impacts us. So there in is, first of all in Leviticus, this heightening sense of, of holiness, of being holy to God and with God. Secondly, is a rising awareness of presence, that God is God in all of the details of life. You see, these are not just rituals and sacrifices that hope to please God or appease some distant God, some God who's far away in heaven, whatever and wherever that is. No, that's the point of the tabernacle, as I've said, that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the people are aware that God is here in your midst. The dynamic living presence of God is much more than just naming uh, the, 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 the tabernacle as God's house. They knew it was God's house. They knew it was the dwelling of God. He is right here among his people, and he's calling them to holiness and to worship. This awareness takes us deeper than moving beyond just calling it the dwelling place of God. There is in the details of, of the rules and regulations the reality that God is present in every dimension of life and existence. God is present in all the details. God is intimately involved in and concerned about all the parts of our life. The reality of his presence is pervasive when you look at Leviticus through this lens. God obviously is present in worship and in prayer, but he's very much intimately present in terms of personal hygiene and even in our sexual lives. God is present. God is present in our spirituality, but God is also present in relationships with family, in relationships with neighbors, in relationships with the foreigners living in our midst. God is present in our relating to the poor. God is present in our harvesting of produce and what we might leave for the poor. God is present even in the the marketplace and, and concerned with ethical practices and weights and measures. It's all there. Everything is pervaded by the presence of God. So much so that we could ask the question, is then everything sacred? Is everything sacred and touched by God? We in our culture today often make such sharp distinctions between sacred and secular, between religious and political. We use that phrase separation of church and state as if we could divide God and say, you're home here, but you ain't home here. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying how we have divided and we draw lines between things here. But as we look at Leviticus through this lens, we can see that God who created all things is present in all things, bringing a sense of sacred, not in a a frightening, looming kind of way, but in a life-giving way. God cares about all the details of our life, and he's there. And everything, if not sacred, has the potential to be sacred in God's economy, connected to all the things that we are connected to. So Leviticus, we have this rising sense or heightening sense of, 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 of holiness, all of this rising awareness of the presence of God and present in all the details of our life, not just the things that we might declare churchy or spiritual. Holiness of presence. Now there's another important theme that gets stirred up in Leviticus too, and that is that of sacrifice. Sacrifice. There's a, a coming face-to-face with sacrifice here and asking the question, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, Seriously. All of these animals, bulls and goats and lambs and birds and all the little lambies, you know, I mean, do you ever think about those lambs? Oh, sure, a thousand people were killed for disobeying, but the lambs, think of the lambs. Isn't that what we do sometimes, you know? But but really, all of these animals, were there that many perfect animals, unblemished animals? Think of the business on the side of creating all these and hurting and Developing all this. But seriously, all of these animals and all this blood. Some of you clean freaks bristled with all that blood getting splattered around on the sides of the altar and over the people. All this blood. It's all so central to the purposes and practices of God's holy tabernacle. But why? Why? Now, if you've grown up in the church or, or you've heard the Old Testament stories and, you, and, you've been, and you're aware somehow of the ministry of Christ and you know that the right answer about the gospel is, quote, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, we may just accept the idea of blood sacrifice but not really question it. We've been taught it, we, we repeat it, but to really ask the question, why a blood sacrifice? We need to press in and ask sometimes. There's plentiful evidence that animal sacrifice was common among the ancient, many ancient cultures. And even in some not-so-ancient cultures, anthropologists will tell us of the existence of blood sacrifice that continues in certain tribal groups. There's somehow ingrained in us then this, this idea of, a, of life being in the body, life being in the blood, and the gift of a life to honor and please and appease a God, but perhaps even life in the blood in order to cover over the failings and the blemishes of imperfect life. Of somehow pleasing God with that and coming to God with that. I gotta be honest with you, I can't fully explain the why, other than to say this is what God chose, and God directed among the Israelites, and their sacrificial system became different from the other cultures. Because it wasn't the sacrifice of children, it wasn't the sacrifice of people, it wasn't to an appease an angry God, it was to worship an angry God or worship a loving God. And to provide somehow for the covering over of the imperfections of people. And God built that system as a way for people to come to him. He's a holy God who, does, who wants us in his presence. And yet the uncleanness and unholiness keeps us apart. God chose and directed that among the Israelites that it would be the way to approach the one true and holy God. Not only honoring him as a source of life but offering the blood of animals as a way of covering and forgiving sin and guilt so that we could still approach and worship a holy God. Now, I don't have time for the full theological lesson here, but two things to understand as we are here in the middle of Leviticus is, is first of all, understanding atonement and then understanding Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. The word that we have of atonement appears in Leviticus. You may have read that, and there's a, the day of atonement is established in Leviticus. It's actually an English word that was made up to explain a, a Hebrew concept. It comes from three words, at, one, and meant. <laughs> Becoming at one with God, really, meaning being reconciled in a relationship, being returned into relationship with God, being one with God. At What gets us to that place? Atonement gets us to that place of back in connection with the Holy God. We are not at home with God when we are in our sins. In biblical atonement, the blood of animals in some way substituted for the death of a guilty person. Now, there's one case where there was, the animal did not die. And it's a word that we use actually in our regular language. There was the scapegoat. You know, scapegoat, the term scapegoat comes from Leviticus 2. That on the Day of Atonement, once a year, there's all kinds of blood sacrifices, but there was also a, a goat that came and the priest would come and they would lay the sins of all of Israel on this goat and send the goat off into the wilderness. And the, and the goat would go, I don't know what's going to happen in the wilderness, but I escaped to death. And he heads out to the wilderness and takes the sins out there. I don't know what happens to him out there, but this whole elaborate system was built around that. But all of these sacrifices and atonement are all anticipating the perfect sacrifice, everything working towards perfection, unblemished animals to stand in the place of unclean people. And all of it is anticipating the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice that is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we need to understand that Jesus is then the perfect sacrifice. One of the ways that the gospel was presented to me as a young person was that you know we are created by a loving God and yet he gave us free will and we fell into sin and the gulf between the holiness and the goodness of God and us in our sins became so vast. There was no way that we could please this holy God. There's nothing we could do no matter how good we were, no matter how clean we thought we were, no matter how many hoops we jumped through. There was no way that we could get to this holy and loving God. And so we needed Jesus to come to us then and to be that perfect savior and to make that sacrifice to bridge the gap that we would be back in relationship. That's one of the ways that we describe this. Uh, describe the gospel. A holy, perfect God with a simple and imperfect, imperfect us. No way to get to God. I, I've used it sometimes as, a, as, as illustrating um, a swimming race from California to Hawaii. Let's say we've got a swimming race and people line up on the beach to try to swim their way to Hawaii. And you've got there my, my two grandsons, Parker and Silas, who are three years old. And they will, when you tell them where they go to, ask them where they go to school, they go, we go to Goldfish Swim School in Naperville. Every week we go to Goldfish Swim School. And they progress from just the otter float to now they are actually, I came home from the swimming laps at the pool, and they go, did you do the otter float, Grampy? Anyway, so you know, they're learning how to swim. And they could probably get at least five, six feet. And they're standing right next to Michael Phelps. <laughs> I mean, he's amazing. He was built for swimming. He's part fish. Even Ellie would try to get there. But, you know, I I, I build the story. I'm not going to go into it now. But nobody can swim from California to Hawaii, no matter how good you are. If you're Michael Phelps or Parker Silas Johnson, you cannot swim there. We cannot bridge this gap. And so God looked down in great love and said, there's no way that these people on their own can be holy. And so the imperfect was in this sacrificial system, but it was anticipating and foreshadowing and looking to the person of Christ to which Scripture says, at the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But he became the perfect sacrifice. Jesus bridges the gap. I think I used to say God sent a 747, this is a long time ago when 747s were cool, from Honolulu over to California to pick us all up. (laughs) The analogy breaks down, but you're with me, right? (laughs) The chances are zero but for the blood of Jesus Christ. Leviticus. Leviticus, this book we stumble over, this book that makes us scratch our head. The Leviticus anticipates the perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system is there and anticipates the sacrifice that was made for you and for me no more sacrifices, no more blood, because we are in Christ and forgiven and at one with God. The fourth theme I want to look at is this response of obedience, of tithes and gifts and offerings. At the very beginning of Leviticus and at the very end uh, is activity about giving and offering. In fact, as you look, that's pretty much all that the first seven chapters of Leviticus are about. Multiple offerings, grain offerings, thank offerings, sin offerings. All these different offerings coming before God. These offerings are, are woven into the worship of the people. Part of them are part of the system of cleansing. It isn't all blood sacrifice. Sometimes it's some cleansing things that they need to do, and sometimes it's the, the gift of an offering. Woven all through the cleansing, purifying, sacrificing, worshiping, even celebrating the celebrating of feasts and festivals as we get into the later chapters of Leviticus. It all involves these offerings that specifically provide for uh, different things. Now, some of them specifically provide for the support of the priesthood uh, to ma- maintain the and to, and to make sure that the priests have a livelihood. Some of the funds specifically go for that. There's a clear sense of some of the offerings that go for the poor. Some of the, 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 the food offerings that come, and people are instructed to leave food on the margins of their land so that the poor can come and glean. There's an offerings and the kindness even shown to the foreigners living in their midst. Some of the offerings come simply to lift up a gift of praise and worship to God himself. The burnt offerings simply, it just says the burnt offerings are an aroma that is pleasing to him. It's a worship, it's a gift of worship to God, the burnt offerings. And then at the very end of Leviticus, we come to the tithe. The tithe, T-I-T-H-E, is mentioned specifically, which literally means 10%. How much do you tithe is kind of a redundant, well, a tithe is, means 10%. And in the flow of God's story, the tithe becomes over and over all in the Old Testament the standard for giving to God. Actually, it's a standard for giving back to God since also established in all of these pages the principle that everything belongs to God. And therefore, we give a portion back to him as an offering of thanks and to to support the work of his priests and all kinds of other things. And so the tithing, the offerings come in the beginning of Leviticus and Leviticus closes with this call to the tithe. I want to look a little bit at the history of the tithe a little bit here. Um, it actually starts all the way back with Abraham, way before there was any rules, laws, there was no Ten Commandments, there was no uh, tabernacle. Abraham was simply called by God to be the father of a great nation and to, to be blessed, to receive the blessing of God and then to be a blessing. But way back in Genesis 14, only a couple chapters after Abraham first gets this promise from God, we meet this uh, unusual character, this sort of mysterious Persian Mel- Melchizedek. Um, to whom Abraham gives a tenth of everything. <laughs> so there was actually a stewardship committee back in, in Genesis 14, and, and Abraham fulfilled his pledge. Uh, and I don't want to make light of that, but it, I, this principle starts there. It starts with he was the priest of Salem, which eventually became what is now Jerusalem. Gave him a tenth of everything couple generations later, it continues with Jacob. In Genesis 28, Jacob has had this dream of, of the ladder. You know, we are climbing Jacob's ladder up and down and, and has this vision. And God then, after the dream, he wakes up from this dream. God reminds and repeats the covenant promise to, to uh, Jacob that Jacob now will carry that same promise that Abraham got of, of God blessing him and blessing all nations through him. The, and Jacob responds with what? But a promise to give back a tenth of all that God has given him. And then we come here to this one verse in Leviticus, Leviticus 27.30, where this this tithe gets established with Moses, too. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It's established by Moses. And you're probably all familiar, if you've ever heard a stewardship sermon before, that it gets commanded and repeated then by the prophet Malachi hundreds and hundreds of years later. Malachi, one of the last prophets to speak before 400 years of silence, until Jesus comes. But Malachi says in verse three or verse 10 of chapter 3, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. There comes that principle of bringing the tithe and trusting God to provide all that we need. For some to say, you take 10% of my income and I'm doomed. And this says, no, you're not. (laughs) Kind of what Malachi was saying to the people. You will, in fact, be blessed. And so this theme of the the tithe is very much an Old Testament principle that gets repeated and, and, and affirmed. But is it only an Old Testament law and regulation? Well, yes, in a sense it is. But it becomes this practice and it becomes a guideline. In fact, it almost becomes assumed as we head into the New Testament is sort of acknowledged and sort of assumed by Jesus or commended by Jesus. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus is denouncing the scribes and Pharisees for all of their outward religious actions. He said, you do all these offerings, you do all these things thinking that you're going to uh, uh, gain attention and people are going to see how perfect you are. You know, you, you need to let God be part of all of these things. You, you make a tithe and you brag about it. And he says, yeah, you should do the tithe. But all these other things you need to invite God into. In a sense Jesus is saying the tithe is just assumed. <laughs> These other things need to be added to that in terms of living out your life in a way of praise and of worship. So Jesus in a sense commends it not as a law not as a regulation not as an external command but as part of the practice of God's people. And finally the tithe or at least proportional giving becomes explained to the church. And again lots of things here but I just summarizing in, both in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in 16 The Apostle Paul is instructing these young churches, and here the church of Corinth, which was a crazy little church, and here he's giving them instructions on the care for those who care for them, for their pastors and other leaders. He's instructing them to do that. And then in chapter 16 is where he talks about setting aside a proportion of their wages every week. Now, he does not mention tithe, because a tithe is not a legally binding thing, but he does mention proportionate giving as a guideline a principle of an intentional percentage week by week. Some people, you know, get a regular, you get a regular paycheck every week, and you know what 10% is. Other people that, uh, that live on, uh, that are uh, dependent perhaps on how the market's doing or those who work by commission, you don't know from week to week. And so Paul says, well, duh, they didn't either. Just, you know, at the beginning of the week, set aside a proportion that you designate as what he instructs the church. And I realize as I step into tithing, it's a, it's a big issue. And this isn't a whole sermon on tithing, but it's a part of a sermon on tithing because it's here in Leviticus as part of the, uh, part of the teaching that Scripture builds. And this reminds me uh, in Megan's and my own story of how grateful I am for teaching that, that we received early on. We were married a little over 41 years ago uh, here in Chicago and then moved immediately to Denver where I attended seminary. And Megan was fresh out of college, armed with her sociology degree and was looking for a job as a, a full-time sociologist. <laughs> she wasn't, but uh, she did actually find a job. She had to work retail for a while, but she actually found a job with the state of Colorado uh, in an institution for, for juvenile delinquents, which became a, actually became a ministry place later, but it was a wonderful Provision for her with her socialite degree and experience with people, and she—I mean, there were tons of applicants, and she got the job. I remember how excited we were when we realized also that her take-home pay was going to be four hundred eighty-five dollars a month. We were going to have four hundred eighty-five dollars a month to live on as a young married couple, which in the fall of nineteen seventy-five wasn't too bad. Our rent and utilities were one hundred sixty—that was a pretty big bite—but there we were. At the same time, we had gotten involved in a a Presbyterian church in South Denver. And we happened to be there right as all this was coming to be. And the pastor was preaching about, you guessed it, tithing. And we looked at each other and went, 48.50? Really? (laughs) And we we decided to try it. We we, we decided to do it. 48.50 was a big bite out of 485 when you took out 160 for rent and utilities and dog food. We had a dog. And we ate too, some. but I say that because uh, not to hold us up as a good example, but I'm so grateful for the teaching that we received then, and we we have been able to stick to it. We 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 stuck to it that when the 485 actually grew a little bit, and then I entered into ministry and <laughs> I made the big bucks. But um, seriously, though, we, we were both working. Children came. We uh, chose for Megan to be home for several years uh, before our kids started to head towards college, and she was able to go back to work. But all those years uh, we and we had we had three kids in at the same time for. To actually three years, uh, three, three kids at the same time in college. And, um, we, we did, we made some really stupid financial decisions. Cause nobody told us to also save 10%. They said, give 10%. I wish somebody had told me to save 10% because I didn't do that then. And we just basically survived. We, we tried to keep, a, a, our kids alive. They are. Uh, B, educated. They are. Uh, and our part's paid off. And theirs is not all pay off. And uh, C, help launch them into life. And they're, they're doing well. And so, um, in a sense, that's where we see the blessing. Not that we have great financial wealth, but we've been blessed in other ways. Megan and I took on a challenge partway through. I mean, you know, we've been giving 10%. You know There's the whole gross and net thing, which is kind of a gross discussion, but it's a good discussion to have. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's what you choose to do. And we realized we'd been giving from our net. So we decided, let's, let's raise it to gross. So we did. And now we've met with a financial planner looking out a few years to retirement and going, now this money that we receive, we, we, paid, we paid a tithe on that back then. Who cares? If you're receiving it now, pay it again. You know, it, It's a choice that we can make to, to take joy in participating and sharing with God's people what God has given. Now, let me finish by saying, you like that word Finish. <laughs> finish by saying the tithe is not a legalistic requirement to land on God's people, and I never want to do that. Some say it's a minimum (laughs) there. (laughs) But more important than that is a sense of what you get from the flow of what God's doing, of themes of generosity and themes of offering to God, themes of God's provision, themes of God's blessing that work its way through the pages of Scripture and then come into your life as you come to know Christ And trust Him and follow Him. And so let me encourage you to to look at that as well in your own life. The themes of Leviticus, rather than putting us to sleep, then call us to response. This theme of holiness, to take a look at our life, and and then the theme of presence, to truly enter into the presence of God when we worship. This presence of this reality, this theme of sacrifice, of facing again the reality of what Christ has done for us. And then this theme of generosity in giving to the Lord's work. And so I leave you with only one question, no pledging forms, no guilt, but what will be your response of obedience today as together we worship the one holy God? Let's worship him now. Lord God, you are a holy and awesome God. We confess that the God we see in the pages of Leviticus, some of it scares us. Some of it confuses us and makes us scratch our heads. And yet, Lord, as we raise up a little bit higher and see you as the holy God who loves his people and who now has done everything necessary for our salvation that we might know you, live with you, walk with you, and enjoy the blessings of life with you, we give you praise. Praying it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.